Well, good morning. Uh, if I haven't got the chance to meet you yet, my name is Evan. I get the chance to serve as one of the lay pastors here, and I'm really excited to be uh, God's messenger to you all this morning. And Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. My oldest daughter, Steli, on Christmas Eve turned two years old. And so my wife, Megan, and I are, we, we jokingly say, we've really started parenting now. You know, for the first little bit of her life, we're raising her, we're keeping her alive, but she has really started to exercise her own will. And you might hear it during the service this morning. She's really started to, to want to do what she wants to do. And, and she can't see what we can see as her parents. She can't see uh, that there are times where she's going to reach out and touch a hot stove, where she's going to run out into the parking lot. And if she does that, she could really hurt herself or even be killed. This morning, we're going to be in Numbers chapter 21. So if you have your Bible, please turn to it with me. If you don't have a Bible with you, uh, please go pick one up off the back table. And if you have one of those hardback black ones, it's going to be on page 129. As you turn there, what we're going to see this morning is that what we have to do to selling, get her attention to keep her from hurting herself, God has to do the same thing to us. We are so prone to want to go where we shouldn't go, to do what we shouldn't do, because we can't see what God sees. We can't see that our actions are gonna lead us directly into destruction. So out of his love for us, he's gonna get our attention. He's gonna wake us up to what's going on. Read with me now, Numbers 21, one through nine. When the Canaanite, the king of Arad, who lived in the Negev, heard that Israel was coming by the way of Aratham, he fought against Israel and took some of them captive. And Israel vowed a vow to the Lord and said, if you will indeed give this people into my hand, then I will devote their cities to destruction. And the Lord heeded the voice of Israel and gave over the Canaanites. And they devoted them and their cities to destruction. So the name of the place was called Hormah. From Mount Hor, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there's no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people, and the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Please pray with me for our time together. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the good news that it brings. That though we are just like the Israelites, we have sinned and are deserving of death, that you provide a way for us to be saved. God, I pray for the Christians in this room that they would see the good news and be reminded once again of your goodness. I pray for those who are here who are not yet followers of Jesus, they would be awakened to their sin and repent and follow you. Be with us in this time, Lord. We pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. So in order to understand what's going on in this passage, I want to do just a quick kind of catch up, a flyover of the Bible to this point in the book of Numbers. So that one starts with the book of Genesis, where God creates a people and chooses for himself one family from which the whole world is going to be blessed. He chooses Abraham's family. And the whole book of Genesis is Abraham or his family members kind of bumbling along and making mistakes. And time and time again, God 
provides for them. He reminds them again and again, hey, I'm gonna take you into a promised land. But then we get to the book of Exodus and God's people are in slavery. So in the book of Exodus, we see God bring them out of slavery from Egypt by his power. And then we get into the book of Leviticus where God tells his people how they should live. When they get into this new place, this is how you should live. You should be set apart from the rest of the world. What God wants is for the rest of the world to look at his people and see his power and his might and be drawn to him. And yet throughout all this time, and even as we get through the book of Numbers, God's people continually disobey. They do what they're told not to do. They go the wrong direction. And time and time again, God is so gracious with them. He's kind. He provides for them over and over again. But to make matters worse, as, as we get into Numbers chapter 21, uh, things are really starting to go downhill. Their leader, Moses, disobeys God. And he's told, hey, you're, you're not gonna make it into the promised land with your people. And then the other leader, Aaron, in chapter 20, he dies on Mount Hor. So we arrive at Numbers 21 with a question on our minds. How are the people gonna get into the promised land and, and who's gonna take them there? So chapter 21 starts with this big military victory. A Canaanite king has come and, and taken some of Israel captive. And so Israel, they go before the Lord and they vow a vow, they promise. They say, God, if you will just deliver us these people, if, you, if you'll just do this for us, we will obey. We'll do anything that you say. We'll turn them over to destruction just as you have told us. And so God does this. He gives them the victory. He gives them exactly what they asked for after they plead with him. And then how does Israel respond after that? Look again at verse four. It says they once again begin to get impatient with God. So kids, this would be like if all you wanted all year was a trip to Disney World. And so you told mom and dad all year, you said, hey, if you'll just take me, if we'll just go on this trip, then I won't be mean to my sister. I'll clean up my room, I'll eat all my vegetables. I'll do whatever I'm supposed to do. And so on Christmas morning, your parents woke you up and they said, hey, get in the car. We're going to Disney World. So off you go, and all week last week, you were there, and you rode all the rides, and you got to see all the characters and do everything that you wanted to do. And on your way to the airport, you get there, and you look at your mom and dad, and you say, Mom and Dad, I think it's about time we did something for me. We should go to Legoland. Why don't you ever do anything like that for me? That would be ridiculous, right? Because what did your parents just do? They just did exactly what you asked them to do. And yet that's what Israel is doing here. They have completely forgotten that God just provided for them. Now, this isn't the first time. This isn't the second time. Not even the seventh time that Israel has done this. On my count, this is the 14th time since Israel has left Egypt and they're moving to the promised land. They've spoken against God or against Moses. And just like most of the time that they complain, in verse five, they go back to one of their favorite complaints. Look again at verse five. It says, and the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There's no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. What a ridiculous question they ask. Why have you brought us here to die? Parents, this would be like if tonight you and your family sit around around the dinner table, your kids sit down and they look at what's in front of them and they go, mom and dad, I don't see any ice cream here. Why do you hate me? Well, of course, you, you don't hate your kids. You love them. You know what's best for them. You have brought them to the dinner table to give them what they need. 
And yet Israel in this moment is just like that spoiled little kid. They're not able to see any further than what's right in front of them. They don't see that God has brought them here for a reason. And so right after they complain about, about where they are, they take it a step further. They complain about what they don't have. They say there's no food and there's no water. But that's just not true. If you turn back one page of your Bible, God literally brings water out of a rock for them. He can bring them water anytime. If you go a little further, they complain to God, they say, we have no meat. And God says, if you guys want meat, I will bring you enough quail that it will literally be coming out of your noses. God knows exactly what his people need. He's given it to them time and time again. And I think about halfway through their complaint, they must realize what they're saying. Because then they say, look, they say, you know, this food that we do have, we loathe it. It's actually pretty worthless. What are they talking about? I think they're talking about the manna from heaven. Every morning, they wake up, they go outside their tent, and there on the ground is bread that God has provided for them. They don't have to do anything to get it. It's a free gift from God to provide for them. But because they've turned in, they focus only on themselves, what they think they don't have. Not even the miracle bread is good enough for them. And I think we look at the Israelites and we see just how ridiculous they are, how little perspective they have. But I think if we're honest, we are exactly the same way. How often do we pray to God? We ask him for something, whether it be peace or kindness or patience or provision. And God is so kind and he gives us that thing. But instead of remembering that, instead of reflecting on it, meditating on God's provision, we just start to look to the next thing or the next thing. And we'll start to pray for that. But as soon as things look like they're not gonna go the way we want them to go, what do we do? We say, well, if God's not gonna do something about this, then I better start. I need to start taking control. Because you know, I think I could do that a little better. I think I could do that a little better. And so we try and try and try to take control of everything around us. We are just like the Israelites in the wilderness. We have completely forgotten about his provision. We think that, you know what? I think things should be better if I was king. If things were better in my kingdom. And to make all of this worse, we look at the bread that he has given us, and it just doesn't seem so good anymore. Why do you think it is that when we begin to turn in on ourselves and focus on what we think we want and how God hadn't provided for us, that the bread of life, God's word, just doesn't seem so good anymore. We don't really want to get into it. We're not really all that interested in discussing it. We begin to loathe it. We begin, we begin to consider it worthless compared to what we can do under our own power. You would probably never say out loud, God, I don't trust you. Things were a whole lot better before you showed up. Yeah, I think actually I could do this whole thing better than you. You would probably never say that, but how often do your actions say exactly that? Listen, God is not gonna settle for being your second king. He's not gonna do it. His promise is that one day every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. He will be king. And out of his love for you, he wants you to recognize that, to see that. And so he's gonna get your attention. That's what he does here in verse six. Look at it again. It says, then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. Moses describes these snakes as fiery serpents. And you might be wondering what 
that means. I don't think that what Moses is saying is that when the snakes show up that they're actually on fire. I don't think he's saying that they're flaming snakes. I think what he's actually doing is he's describing the bite of these serpents. That when you got bit in the arm or the leg, it literally felt like you were on fire. However you look at it, this is a really gruesome scene, right? Imagine you and your family are talking amongst yourselves in your tent, and then you start hearing shouts from outside. And you go outside, and you look in all over the place at these snakes. And these things are vicious. They are just biting anything that moves. And one by one, you see your friends and your family get bit by these snakes and go to the ground in pain, and then they die. This is really scary to think about. Why would God do this? This seems really unkind. Why would God send snakes among them that he knows are going to kill them? He does this because he knows something that Israel doesn't see. He knows that if they continue down this path of doing things their own way, of going their own route, they're headed directly to destruction. So imagine that you and some friends are in Asheville. You're on a zip lining tour. And so you go from platform to platform, 80 feet in the air. And, and right before you're about to go off the next one, you look up and you see your friend is not connected their zip line. They're not on the cable. And if they go off this platform, they're headed directly to their death. What would you do? Would you stay silent? Of course not. You would do everything that you possibly could to get their attention. You want to save their life. That's what God is doing here. God is trying to get their attention. And he's trying to save them because God knows what they don't. If they keep going this way, their sin is going to kill them. And the same is true for us. Our sin is going to kill us. It will. It's so deceptive. Because not only is it going to kill us, it's going to lie to us the whole time. It's going to say, follow me. We're going in the right way. I promise. We're going to get where you want to go. Just follow me. This way is easier. This way is actually better. But it's not. Your sin is only going to lead you to death. So for example, teens in the room. Let's say that tonight you and your friends have plans to go to a few different houses to celebrate New Year's. And so you're really, really excited that you guys are finalizing plans this afternoon. And you hear that at one of your stops along the way, somebody has brought some alcohol. We're going to bring some alcohol. You think, well, you know, I'm not going to drink. But that does sound like a really good time, and I would hate to miss out on that party. And so when the time comes to tell mom or dad what we're going to do and how we're going to do it, I'm just gonna leave that part out. They really wouldn't like it. And really, it's just a little white lie. And so off you go, you've told them your little white lie, and then they begin to check in throughout the night. And you forget where you said you were gonna be, at what time, and so you have to tell another lie, and then another lie. And before you know it, you've had to lie all these times just to make your first story line up. Now you might be thinking, well, I didn't really do anything wrong because I didn't hurt anybody and I didn't even drink. Isn't that good? But that's not true because you have hurt someone. You've begun to condition yourself to lie to those closest to you to get what you want. You've begun to condition yourself to manipulate situations and circumstances to be where you want to be. These little white lies that you think are not that big of a deal, after a while, they're not going to say so little. Believe me, I know. I, I am living proof up here to tell you that if you think you can just go down this path 
and being deceptive and telling lies and be okay, you won't. You will destroy your life. Maybe for some of you in here, you're, you're closer to my age and you find yourself on Zillow a lot this time of year. You just wanna see what the market's doing. You just wanna see what's out there. And as you're looking at other houses, you know, you may not be coveting your neighbor's house, but I'm, I'm a little jealous of their kitchen. That's a sweet backyard. I wish that we had bathrooms like that. And so you, you start to think, well, you know, next year we could, we could spend a little bit more money on that stuff. I mean, after all, isn't that what we should do? I mean, we should take care of our stuff. But you start to spend more and more, and maybe more than you should at Target and Home Depot to gather more and more for yourself. And next thing you know, you begin to resent those who have more than you. You begin to resent God for not providing for you. You become exactly like the Israelites. You've forgotten about God's provision for you. On and on I can go, but what I'm trying to tell you is that anytime, anytime we willingly walk down this path of sin, we are inviting the snakes to come up and to take a bite. We are opening ourselves up to death. When we willingly choose to sin, we're setting ourselves on a collision course for the fiery death here in Numbers 21. And there's none of us that is going to escape it. None of us can escape the fiery death that sin brings. And God knows this. That's why God wants to get your attention. It's because he loves you. Out of his love for you, God is going to give you the grace of a servant by him. He's gonna allow your spouse to find that thing or things that you've been wanting to keep hidden from them for so long. He's gonna allow your boss to find out that you've been lying to him or her to make yourself look better or to make someone else look worse. He's gonna allow your kids to rebel against you and even become estranged from you because you won't apologize for they responded to them in anger. God is going to allow you to go broke, spending money you don't have on stuff that you don't need to impress people that you don't even like because he loves you. He wants to get your attention. He's gonna allow these seemingly catastrophic, life-ending things to happen to you because he loves you. He doesn't want you to die, but your sin is going to kill you. Not only does he want to get your attention, though, he wants to restore you. He wants to take you off the throne and put Jesus back on. He wants to help you do that. So in those moments, when God has woken us up to our sin, when we feel the fiery bite of sin, what should we do? I think verses seven through 10 here, they show us that our response to God's gracious discipline is to confess our sins and look and live. Look again at verse seven where we see to be saved from our sin, we must first confess our sin. And the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he may take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. So the Israelites begin by confessing their sin. Look how differently their response is here in verse seven compared to verse five. In verse five, what do they do? They speak directly against God and against Moses. But here in verse seven, they appeal to God and Moses for help. They've seen firsthand the consequence of their sin. And it's not a mystery to them. They're not wondering why the snakes are here. They know exactly what has happened. They recognize they are responsible first and foremost to God. 
Sometimes I think one of the most challenging things of growing in Christ-likeness as a Christian is confessing my sin. Now, I know that I am a sinner. All of you know that I am a sinner. I know that I sin. But what I really mean is the work that it takes to get to the bottom of my heart, to see the bitterness and the selfishness and the pride and the anger that's down there, I don't really wanna do the work. I would much rather distract myself with other things. But identifying our sin really is the first step in being cured from it. We have to be able to identify it. It's not enough to just throw a blanket over your sin and say, God, I know that I probably sin, uh, so just help me not to do that. No, we have to be able to identify it. And this is only gonna happen if you give yourself the time and the space alone with the Spirit to get to the bottom of your heart and see what's down there. But that's, I think, a huge challenge in our culture, isn't it? Because everything around us is designed to get our attention off of ourselves, off of how we're doing, off of our sadness and brokenness, and onto something else. And it's really good at it. All the things in our culture are really good at doing this. For example, ladies, after a really long day of work, after a really long day with the kids or with your husband, why is it so much easier, rather than to sit down, get to the bottom of your heart and confess sin, to just doom scroll on Pinterest or Instagram? Why is it so much easier to live our lives through a six inch aluminum box than to figure out how our hearts are really doing? Or guys in this room, why is it so much easier to turn on a game or go down a YouTube black hole or spend hours on our fantasy football teams than it is to really understand what's going on in our heart? Why does it feel like we will do anything? We'll go to any length to keep from having to think about our sin and confess it. I think if we're honest, I think if we're really honest with ourselves, we just think, you know what? If I just stuff it down, if I just push it away, if I just pretend like it's not there, eventually it'll go away. It, that person that I wronged, they're gonna forget about it. And they probably don't even know that it was me. You know, my kids, they're gonna grow up one day. And they're going to see why I responded to them that way. They'll learn, I don't really need to get into it with them right now. You know, I know that I shouldn't have yelled at them. But husbands and wives, they fight all the time. If this isn't the first time, it won't be the last. Let's just sleep on it. And honestly, I'd just rather not get to it. You know, over and over, we just pretend like it'll go away. They'll all be all right. But, but here's the truth, and I love you all too much not to tell you this, but it's not going to be all right. It's not going away. The fiery bite of sin is not going anywhere. The good news for us is that there is so much good news to be found in the story of the bronze serpent because God doesn't just leave his people to be bitten by snakes and die. No, he provides a way out. In verse 8, we learn to be saved from our sin. We must look and live. Verse 8 says, And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. 
This is a really wild turn of events. Because do you remember what Israel asked for in verse 7? What did they ask for? They said, Moses, pray to God that he would take the snakes and get them away. That's what Israel thinks is a solution for their sin. Just get the snakes away. But what does God do? God says, no, Moses, I want you to take some bronze and make that into a snake and hold it up on a pole. And everyone who looks at the snake will live. This is really odd. This is really odd that the snake is the thing that would save them. If you're familiar with their Bible, you know that the snake is not a picture of good. It's not a picture of health. It's not a picture of righteousness. No, a snake is a picture of evil. In Genesis chapter 3, Satan shows up as a snake. In Exodus, the Egyptians worship snakes, right? They deify them. All throughout the prophets, we're told that, that the words of God's people, sorry, the words of the enemies of God's people, like the words of vipers and serpents. So the snake is not a picture of good. It, it's like the, the picture of the poison symbol that they put on the side of trucks or chemical bottles. It's meant stay away from this as far as you can because what's in here is gonna hurt you. So it's really odd that that's Israel's only hope to look at the serpent. But if you notice, God doesn't provide any other way. He doesn't allow them to just bear, you know, the pain and they'll get through it or try harder or work at being better. No, their only hope is to look at the snake. I, th I think sometimes for us, the last thing we want to do is face our sin. We'll do anything else. We'll say, I'm going to put up all these barriers to keep you from getting to it. Or we'll surround ourselves with people who we know will agree with us, who will say, you know what, that bite, it's not that bad. I actually, I think it's getting better. I think you just wait this one out, it's gonna be okay. The truth is that none of that is actually gonna save us. None of that is actually gonna remove the consequence of our sin. We have to be willing to look at the very thing that's cursed us. That's our only hope. But how's that gonna happen? How does looking at our curse save us? I think that's what, what Jesus is trying to communicate to Nicodemus in John chapter three. Nicodemus is a religious leader and he and Jesus get together one night and Nicodemus just doesn't understand uh, what Jesus is all about and where he's coming from. And so Jesus tells him a few different times and in a few different ways that to be saved from sin, it's, it's not about doing more rules. It's not about giving the right offerings, no. Your only hope is to look and live. In John 3, verse 14, he shows us, Jesus shows us what the, what the bronze serpent and what that day in the desert are ultimately pointing to. He says, as Moses lifted up the serpent of the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. The snake on the pole, it shows us what Jesus accomplished for us on the cross. Israel's sin set them on a path to destruction. They were headed to death, and God gets their attention. And much in the same way, our sin is leading us to death. There's no escaping it. None of us, once we have been bitten by sin, is gonna escape its consequences. So stop trying to fight these things on your own. Stop trying to fight your sin on your own. You're not gonna be able to get it away. You're not gonna be able to avoid it for long enough to get better, no. You're already bit. 
You only have one hope, and it's the same hope as Israel in the wilderness. Your only hope is to look and live, or you will die. And this is really terrible news, I know, but you need to hear the terrible news because it's what makes the good news so good. Because the good news is that Jesus became the snake. He was raised up on the pole. All you have to do is look and live to be saved from your sin. He was raised up for you so that you wouldn't have to die. You have nothing left to fear. You don't need to fear death. Your only hope, though, is to confess your sins and to look and live. Brothers and sisters in Christ here in this room, I, I am pleading with you to confess your sins with one another. First John chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. They say, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In order to grow in Christ-likeness and flee our sin, we have to start by confessing it. The church is not meant to be a place where we come through those doors and we put a smile on and we pretend like everything's going great and the holidays are wonderful and yes, we're doing good, thanks for asking. Meanwhile, we know that all week we've been bitten by snakes and we even brought a few in with us. Now this is a place where we come together as God's people, we confess our sin together. You may feel that you're at the very end of your rope with God, that he's forgotten about you, that he's, he's tired of hearing you confess the same sin again and again, but he's not. He loves you. Jesus' death on the cross proves that he's not done with you. He wants to save you again and again and again from your sin. So confess your sin and bring it to the light. Your sin is a whole lot worse than you want it to be. And it's, it's real and it should be taken seriously. But the good news is that Jesus has saved you from all of it. If you have looked upon him, you will live. But if you're not a Christian and you're in this room, you have to know that you are still sitting here with the venom of sin running right through you. And it doesn't matter how you think your life has gone to this point, good or bad, your sin is going to kill you. If you do not begin by confessing your sin and looking to Jesus, you will not be saved. You'll be separated from God and from his people for all eternity. But the good news is that where you sit right now, you can be saved from your sin. Because God's not waiting on you to try harder. He's not waiting on you to get better. He's not waiting on you to pick yourself up by your own bootstraps before he saves you. No, he's done all the work for you. The only thing you must do is look and live. Look and live. Look and live upon the one who was raised up for you. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. They say, for our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Listen, Jesus loves you so much that he became the very thing that is killing you right now. He was beaten, he was mocked, he was scorned, he was stabbed and he bled and he died so that you wouldn't have to. Jesus doesn't just take the snakes away from you. 
Jesus became the snakes for you so that you can live. You have nothing left to fear. Just look upon him and live. If you're a Christian in this room, the cure for your sin is exactly the same. You don't have to try to fight sin on your own. Look to your king. Remember he who has paid it all. Remember he who loved you long before you loved him. So when you have those moments where you're awakened to your sin, where you realize I did it again, when you have to face consequences, sometimes massive consequences for your sin, remember this, it's not a sign that God doesn't love you, he doesn't care about you. It's a sign that he's there. He wants to get your eyes off of you and back onto him. You can be free from the fiery bite of sin. You must confess your sins and look and live. So spend time reading God's word, meditating on it, spending time in silence, asking God to reveal to you where you need to repent, where you need to confess sin. Talk about God's word with his people when you lie down and when you rise up and as you go along the way. Celebrate the stories of the Bible with God's people. Remember him who was raised up on the pole for you and look and live. I want to pray that we would. God, thank you so much for the good news of this passage. We are just like Israel. We have sinned. We're going in the wrong direction. We are headed for certain destruction. But you, out of your love for us, you get our attention and you provide a way for us to be saved. God, I pray that we, as your people, would confess our sins together, that we would look to you as the author and perfecter of our faith and be saved. We love you, Jesus, and we pray these things in your name. Amen.